Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Positively Trek. I am one of your co-hosts, a bit of a snuffily Barry DeFord, here with Mr. Dan Gunther. How you doing, Dan? Not too bad. Uh, excited, of course, as always, to talk Trek and spend a little bit of our, our holiday season kind of uh, in Star Trek mode, which is always fun. I am currently actually beginning talks on um, getting prodigy watched with the with the young people i live with uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see if i can get to a couple of binges in with them and then you and i can sit down and maybe even get takes from the six and 12 year old i plan on uh, getting to watch it oh that would be exciting uh, as we're recording this of course there's only one episode left to right. air <laughs> in the 20 episode first season so yes uh yeah i'd love to do kind of a, a wrap-up maybe our, our next episode if possible that's on, what i'm thinking that yeah, and and if that if if everything goes according to plan, the uh, the two youngins will have at least watched. I'm I'm thinking in the the un, just under two weeks we have right now, probably able to get through at least the first half. I'm going to end up obviously going back, and I haven't finished even up to where we, we've left off yet. So um, don't say anything. It's just yeah. Anyways. We won't be talking about Prodigy today, but uh, just know that that's coming up, and I and I think the uh, opinions of tiny folk would be uh, a useful one here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as the the creators have said, it's a show made for everyone, but that everyone does include, you know, the youngest among the audience, and you know, hopefully we can wrangle some new Star Trek fans too with this. So Absolutely, that would be really cool. Yeah. So the the topic today is is one that I have been sort of quietly picking away at and, and I am the res- I am responsible for the delays but I hope uh, in that respect you folks uh, listening won't be uh, too disappointed uh, overall because uh, there is actually going to be a little questionnaire I'm going to be giving Dan that's a discussion based questionnaire and like any good podcast listener you're thinking along and sort of casually responding to some of the things we're talking about no doubt while you listen well here's a really good opportunity for you to actively respond in your mind 
to the questions I'm going to ask Dan about Starfleet uniforms. <clears throat> I might have mentioned this before, uh, but when I was writing my uh, my thesis for my master's degree in uh, education, um, well, technically it's a capstone, which is much smaller than the thesis, so don't think I'm some kind of massive book writer. But uh, during crunch time, when things were getting really bad and I was procrastinating my way out of a degree, um, I had to resort to some interesting methods to get myself to finish the uh, the the amount of bookwork I had to do citing, um, make sure that everything is formatted correctly, making sure that I have all my eyes dotted and t's crossed. It was a very arduous experience, and if you count all the essays and writing projects I did together, I guess that would probably be about the size of a master's thesis. But uh, this was kind of a last thirty-five page kind of scramble to the end of it, and I was running out of one of the three typically energy interest or time and it was kind of a mix of those so i tried something quite radical i like listening to that kind of noise canceling brown black white noise sort of stuff um and instead what i would do is i would play the ambient enterprise d bridge Mm. sound and Mm -hmm. i just love that the 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 hum the beeping it just makes you feel productive and knowing that there's an android sitting near you who could kill everyone on the bridge immediately and is also working harder than you it kind of keeps you moving right it (laughs) keeps you going but i also put on my most comfortable and i will argue this to the end of my life uh the voyager um two-piece uniform that i that i have and i'd throw that on throw on the enough to make me a commander and with that uniform on, with the Enterprise, you know, ambient noise playing loudly, I was able to complete my master's thesis and I was done and good. It's interesting how that associative thing that I did actually increased my productivity level. I love that. I, I think that's wonderful. There have been many a time and, and I haven't shared this with a lot of people because it sounds a little bit, you know, whatever, but uh, when I've been at work, for example, and in a work setting, like at a meeting or something and I see everybody sitting around the meeting table and I kind of imagine in my head that like, you know, I'm wearing a particular uniform and, you know, there's a, the captains over there and then the person leading the meeting, some admiral or something, giving us a briefing, you know, it just kind of, it's a little something to get you through it. Right. And uh, I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that idea of play or make-believe as an adult. I, I think that that can be very helpful. And in your case, like you said, very motivating. And, you know, the idea that, yeah, like Ensign Mendon on the bridge of the Enterprise D, they're, they're going to get criticized to heck and back by Data for doing something wrong or whatever, right? Yeah. So I, I love that. This is a saying in, in education more so, but, you know, they say that people will learn most about something that they see themselves reflected in. And I see the Star Trek uniform, not just the Star Trek uniform, but I want to really kind of zero in on it today um, as a way to see ourselves reflected in Star Trek. And, and puns aside, the idea that typically when you put on a Starfleet uniform, where's the first place you go? A mirror, right? You need mm-hmm. to see your face on this this piece of icon, you are literally draping yourself, right, in Star Trek. Aside from being able to go to somewhere like Vulcan, Alberta, which I don't even think you can get in that ship. It's not big enough. Um, You know, we don't really have places to go. I mean, obviously, there's Ticonderoga in New York. There used to be the Star Trek experience in Vegas. Um, But there really aren't very many places to go where you can actually feel like you're on a starship. So next best best thing is dress up like a person and you have a forever Halloween costume like I do. I, I always do that. There's always like at work, they're like, oh, let's do like 100 and one Dalmatians or something. I'm like, I'm going to not do that and just be in my Star Trek uniform. And they're like, oh, <laughs> come on, Barry. I'm like, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Like, it's just hard. No. Anyways, 
outside of talking about our main topic today, there are in fact some uh, interesting little news tidbits that I think we should we should get ourselves uh, chatting about here before we get too deep into the the weeds here. So IDW Comics is starting up their uh, new year with a 30th anniversary of Deep Space Nine with a run a small mini series of comic books titled Dog of War. I am excited. I am hopeful, and I love that there's a corgi on board. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing that caught my eye about this, of course, is the cover art featuring very prominently this corgi on a couple of the the different variant covers. And uh, yeah, it's it's a five issue comic miniseries, like you said, celebrating the 30th anniversary of Deep Space Nine, which literally hurts my bones to say that phrase out loud 30th anniversary of deep space nine yikes uh but yeah that's 2023 that's the 30th anniversary uh and this is going to be uh, a lost episode of deep space nine in their words so uh in april of this year of of next year i guess depending on when you listen to this yeah uh, that's when uh, this is going to come out so uh this looks pretty cool uh they did release an official synopsis as well uh, and that goes as follows. In the new miniseries, an extremely rare purebred corgi from Earth makes its way aboard Deep Space Nine when Quark cuts a deal to procure it for a potential buyer. After all, a Ferengi without profit is no Ferengi at all. But the corgi, named Latinum, comes with unexpected cargo that shakes Captain Benjamin Sisko to the core, a Borg component discovered by a crew sent to uncover Cardassian technology after the station's reoccupation. Hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm on board. I, I love it already. <laughs> I feel like the writers were watching a couple episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and they're like, we need cheddar on Deep Space Nine. Yes. <laughs> right? Just, literally. And, you know, obviously there are some Cisco captain, uh, what's his name? Captain Raymond Holt, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a the the Captain Holt Cisco connection there. You know, I mean even the actor Andre uh Brogner, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Him and Avery Brooks could definitely play. There, there yeah, there's a bit of a I don't know, I, I would love to see like a a reimagining of like the Picard Jellico paradigm um, mm. and have like Andre Brogner come on and and play like a Jellico-esque to Cisco's, you know, whatever. That would be fun, but I yeah, I just totally was like, "Oh, this is Brooklyn 99 in space." Yeah. Um, and vice versa, to see Avery Brooks come on Brooklyn Nine Nine as some police dignitary across as Hawk. from Hawk. The, oh, yeah, there you go. Hundred yeah. percent. He could just Crossover. come back on as Hawk. <laughs> just... Oh man, yep. There it is. <laughs> yeah, I got fun. halfway there, and you got us the rest of the way. Yeah, That's you laced perfect. the track. I locked the flow. It's all good, man. <laughs> um, now this will be fun. I I still pick up comic books every now and again. I know most people do the digital thing, but I'm probably going to swing over to my local purveyor of fine comic books and just get the run. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I've made no secret of the fact that Deep Space Nine just has this special place in my heart. So uh, this would be a good one to own, I think, and kind of keep in the collection. I also love this variant cover that uh, by Chris Finoglio, which is uh, kind of a crossover with Lower Decks. Yes. I, I really enjoy that with the Niners baseball team. And then Cerritos players there as well. <laughs> yes. Again, there's um, there's an aspect, uh, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek aspect that I appreciate about all this. Mm-hmm. For sure. Which, you know, Deep Space Nine did from time to time, but wasn't really known for being the most lighthearted. 
Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to kind of bring that back, you know, other than the Ferengi episodes and, yeah. uh, trials and tribulations. Oh, I guess they're pretty lighthearted, whatever. <laughs> Some are. I, and that's the thing is, is I do find that when Deep Space Nine tries to be, uh, lighthearted, it can be a little hit and miss. Um, they're definitely better at their like serious, like arcs and everything like that. But you're absolutely right. Like trials and tribulations was a love story to TOS. And mm-hmm. again, is seeing some of the DS9 actors in the old 60s style uniforms was nostalgic. It was charming. The, the, those uniforms, I will be talking about how they are mildly problematic uh, in today's society. Of course. But uh, very yeah. much ties into our discussion, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I think in that respect, um, yeah, Deep Space Nine, fun, tongue in cheek, and uh, it'll be it'll be a, a good little read, I think. Yeah. Definitely. Well, there's another little news story I wanted to include, which was just fun. And that's uh, Sir Patrick Stewart celebrating the Christmas season by joining TikTok. Why not? I mean, it's so much fun. I am sure lots of our listeners have already found this, but... Uh, yeah, he's on TikTok reading excerpts from Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and it's so lovely. It just was such a nice little, just just a lovely little way to kind of end your evening each night over 12 days of Christmas. So I love his accent. I love how he talks. I mean, um, there have been a few audiobooks I've loved the uh, the sort of mellifluous tones of, of someone like Patrick Stewart or a Stephen Fry or you know whatnot um, is he is he leaving like is this intentional like I know uh, Marina Sirtis kind of was like screw Twitter I'm out of here is he part of that kind of like exodus or I'm, I'm not sure the, the ones I've watched he didn't mention anything like that it was kind of he introduced it by, by saying well I'm joining TikTok so here's Charles Dickens, basically. Uh, and yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure if there's any relation to that, but it would be understandable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I love hearing stories. I mean, I think about uh, myself, there's always a family tradition that we would listen to the, um, the Vinyl Cafe uh, on CBC, mm. where uh, mm-hmm. the late uh, but still great Stuart McLean would tell the stories of Dave and Morley and their family over a long period of time. And I think if there's any Canadian listeners, you may have heard Dave Cooks the Turkey, yes. uh, the one where he he has to go <laughs> purchase a turkey super late. Um, I think there's a there's a a voice that lends itself to storytelling. And obviously I think that's why they picked John, uh, John Luke Picard. I was going to say Patrick Stewart (laughs) for all of this. I mean, even thinking about him when he does the whole space, the final frontier, these are the voyage. Like he's the way Mm -hmm. he says it is just so, so much more grandiose than, um, than Bill did, but, and that's fine. Um, he did his own version and it's all good. So yeah, it'll be good. I, I think, uh, I, I don't have a TikTok account, so I will peripherally follow him probably through the people in my household who do have TikTok. Yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing is just uh, when I see the link come up, clicking it because there's there's people sharing it because I follow a lot of people who follow things that I like. So, uh, yeah, but I haven't joined TikTok. Maybe I did join TikTok. I think I might actually have an account somewhere, but I have no idea what to do with it or something. But I, don't. I think, yeah, I think I downloaded the app once, but social media right i don't know it's a it's a weird time for social media we were talking before recording that i've sort of shrunk my world down to just the people i live with right now and i haven't had a better a better experience than doing that makes you feel whole well i also wanted to talk a little bit before we jump into the discussion about this podcast in general and where it's going to be going from here and that sort of thing Uh, So people may have noticed there's been uh, a kind of reduction in the number of episodes, the main episodes we're doing every other week, and the book club shows have kind of dried up a little bit. 
Uh, I just wanted to say that there's a plan in place to kind of change things up and move it forward in the new year. Uh, I do have plans for more book club episodes as well as a return to covering some of the comics, especially since IDW is churning out so many different titles now. I'm definitely wanting to catch up on some of those and get those going. So those will kind of be integrated with book club episodes, which, like I say, are coming back. And actually the next episode after this one, which will be the first episode of the new year, is a new book club episode with uh, myself and uh, Jesse Earl, Jesse Gender, you may know her as on YouTube, uh, hosting David Mack talking about his newest Star Trek novel, Harm's Way. So That's look so cool. forward to that in the new year. Yeah. And uh, Much lots Jesse. more book club stuff to come for sure. I think that's great that uh, we're looking at some change and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, the, the quality I'm bringing is um, maybe not necessarily the, the quantity we'd like it to be at, but uh, over time, I'm really hopeful that, um, yeah, we can, we can get into some better swings and stuff like that. Obviously life and stuff has changed quite a bit uh, for this guy, but um, who, for whom hasn't it right? Yeah. No kidding. Say goodbye your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This episode of Positively Trek would not be possible without the support of those of you who have gone to patreon.com slash positively trek and signed up to become a Patreon supporter of the show. Thank you all so very much for your donations. They truly do help bring this show to you each week. Thank you especially to our Constitution class supporters, Joyce Marin, Justin Ozer, Jim Stoffel, Jesse Earle, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, and Paul D. Kinnear. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show, go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can get perks such as early access to episodes, ad-free versions of episodes, exclusive content, shoutouts, associate producer credits, and much more. Once again, that's patreon.com slash positivelytrek. Thank you all once again. And now, let's get back to the show. Well, I think it's time we get on to um, our, our main topic today. And and the first thing I want to do is just acknowledge the sources that I used. 
Um, there are some pretty interesting and amazing people online. I don't know much about this guy other than he wrote, I would say, a book about the TNG era uniform paradigm. Uh, he, he published it on January 15th, 2022. And he basically talks about Star Trek costumes between the TOS series to TNG, and then he stops. So then we can kind of go from there. Um, his author's name is simply Obsessive Costuming Dude. So that's the uh, best I can do. I'm sure, Dan, if I send you the link, we can throw that on the, the episode notes so people can have a look for themselves. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And then the other uh, piece that I ended up looking at was a very fascinating master's dissertation, speaking of which, by uh, Johanna Consuelo Simpson out of Baylor University. Uh, and Johanna ended up writing about inclusion in fandom and talking about how Harry Potter fans uh, rhetorically create representation. And so I know that isn't necessarily where we're going to, but I was able to sort of plumb from that a couple of interesting pieces about Star Trek fandom and how we identify as Star Trek folk. Um, and, you know, kind of if you want to think about it, like basically I'm going to sorting hat, uh, you get to sorting hat yourself as a Star Trek person, and then you get to tell me why. Um, so I have a number of questions about that. So this uh, conversation does a lot more talking about the concept of um, gender coding, and in certain cases, also not just doing that, but um, race bre- race bending and race branding, <clears throat> a couple of different things, representation and fandom. It's a very interesting exploration, and I think it's worth uh, a read for everyone. I think actually our uh, friend and fellow co-host Jesse Earl would find this um, a very interesting conversation, so perhaps I might hit Jesse up and see if they ever want to talk about that. Ultimately, though, I want to start with the obsessive costuming guy and talk a little bit first about the original costume. Now, Dan, I think you may know names and stuff better than I do. So if you have any, uh, I'd also be interested to know where I've kind of gone wrong. But the person who invented or at least designed the original costume, um, not the Delta, that was Matt Jeffries, as far as I know, but was a fellow by the name of William Ware Theus, which very much when you read it for the first time, looks like William Ware This, which is sort of what they must have had to say to <laughs> William Shatner. Uh, William, wear this. And then he was like, certainly in I don't know, but he he's the one who created that original, very, you know, form-fitting uh, look. Now, we've also probably heard, and this story sort of sits in the realm of Apocrypha almost, but I don't doubt it for a second, that RCA basically gave Desilu Studios a contract to put on colored uniforms because they wanted to sell color TVs. Is Have you heard this before? I've heard that, yeah, as, as and it makes sense. Uh, it was used i think in a lot of the uh the ad literature and stuff was you know mm-hmm. go buy a color tv because you'll want to see this in color kind of thing so yeah i i think that's very much true william ware and i believe it's tice is tice. how i've heard it pronounced yes it pronounced yeah but uh yeah very influential on the original starfleet uniforms and of course all of the costumes of the original series and actually early TNG as well. So Yeah. And that's the thing is is he comes back and so there's this tension that exists in the way the uniform looks, right? I mean, going from your classic primary colored, well, sort of primary colored, I guess. It was supposed to be green, but it ended up looking yellow because of the way the TVs were back in those days and just the mm-hmm. colors they were using. But um that kind of original primary color look coupled with the Wrath of Khan and even the um 
the the motion picture more militaristic that Bob Fletcher came up with, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then looking at the marrying of those two, I want to talk a little bit in depth about that, um, how you can sort of see in TNG a marrying of those two uniforms. And then I want to branch off beyond that into a conversation about how the uniforms look now and what we could see the you know those uniforms doing in the future or, or you know where they are currently at i think would be kind of interesting so first of all like what i would what i find interesting the most about is is those original uniforms were very much designed to be simplistic um they were designed to be very efficient and there was a bit of an arbitrariness to them right i mean i think you it is kind of weird to see ohura in the back on the radio and then another guy you know muscling a person into a into an elevator to take them to the brig and they're part of the same color division for some reason right there is a bit of an arbitrary confusion there and over time you started seeing that codify more and less in some cases i mean the same kind of thing could be asked of like wharf jordy and data Mm -hmm. started different colors and are and ended the same color and aside from jordy no one's job really changed yeah it's it's odd i've always thought the the division distinctions were kind of weird in that you've got command sciences slash medical and then operations is kind of the umbrella for the other one but like i feel like engineering and security are you know more distant from each other than even like i don't know command and and i don't you know it's it's it seems kind of arbitrary but yeah uh, yeah. yeah Well, protect. I mean, my usual go-to with with the engineering argument, and and this kind of paints me into a corner if we explode this anymore, but engineering, you know, the reason why you wear either the red or the gold, depending on what what era you're in, is either in operations you are protecting the ship or you're protecting the crew. Hmm. I kind of like that. That's almost... Don't don't scratch that. Don't lift the rock. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean, that almost kind of fits in with the whole high-minded ideal that we hold star trek to sometimes as well that like security maybe isn't this huge branch that is really important that we arm a bunch of people and dress them in paramilitary garb it's just it's another part of the operations like that's another thing that is required to make a ship run smoothly but it's not you know I, I don't know. It, it, it feels like there's something there. <laughs> well, and, it, and that exactly is it, right? It represents the difference between Tice and Fletcher's vision of Starfleet, right? Fletcher makes, he, he makes a, a militaristic uniform, right? Both the, the, the original motion picture and then the Wrath of Khan monster maroons are very militaristic. Colors designate jobs very much more he has way more colors and i don't actually Mm -hmm. i wasn't able to fully determine all of the colors aside from the usuals you know to, to some degree it was a little confusing um but he very much you know he even put people in special outfits you know like for for engineering and security you know they weren't even dressed the same at all the security was wearing helmets and looked like henchmen right like bond henchmen (laughs) or something um Mm -hmm. and then obviously you know, basically engineering, they looked like they were wearing spacesuits, and and rightly so if you look at how much damage was happening in that area. Yeah, there, that's one thing about the the Wrath of Khan uniforms, especially the Monster Maroons, right? All those division colors and stuff. And as someone who you know had a had a copy of Mister Scott's Guide to the Enterprise, and you know flipped open and always paid attention to all those little tiny details and stuff, you know, I could. 
<laughs> I can tell you what each division color was and what it meant and how jarring it was at the end of the motion picture when Spock and McCoy are on the bridge and they have the armbands on and then the camera angle changes and they're wearing the opposite ones. Yep. And you're like, whoops. <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's fun to see them create a, well, you know, you start creating these norms, right, out of whole cloth, right? We've got norms about the Star Trek uniform, right? Red shirts always die, uh, unless it's the new era, right? And 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 so it becomes these weird norms and tropes and all this sort of stuff. And I do see a tension that exists that I, I would argue has recently, to some degree, been resolved. But we'll get into that in a second. I think the Discovery era has actually resolved it, or at least they've they've advanced it to a point that. I think it's a lot more inclusive and more inclusive than it has been in a long time. So, you know, you go from um, Tice having very gendered costumes from the 1960s, right? Barely any women in command and no women, no woman wore pants, right? I think that mm-hmm. was always the big piece of it, with the exception of number one, right? Uh, she wore pants to start with. Yeah, basically the, the women in the cage style uniforms, they all had pants. But then when it went to series after Where No Man Has Gone Before, yeah, the women wore the mini skirts exclusively, pretty much exclusively. I think there's one uh, exception to that. Interestingly enough, I think one woman crew member who gets like hyper aged <laughs> and we see her in pants i think well, if i remember go. correctly <laughs> there hmm, you go wonder why that might be <laughs> funny how 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 those who code women must both be sex objects and nurturing figures at the exact same time mm-hmm. um anyways that is that is interesting how you know we see in the militarization of the starfleet uniform with fletcher um well first of all you get i would say a very close imagining of what we would see in tng with those original motion picture uniforms right these scanty very thin um in certain cases um alarmingly revealing <coughs> decker um sort of <laughs> Uh, uniforms that will eventually be sort of re-envisioned with a lot of what Tice kind of wanted to keep with his old style from the 60s. But then we see again that shift over to the Monster Maroon where we don't really see gender falling into the uniform as much. We do see the uniform, you know, tailoring itself to the body contours of the individual wearing the uniform. But the the meaningful differences between a male or a female or a person who codes as one or the other wearing one of those uniforms does sort of melt away a little bit more, would you say? A little bit, yeah. There is still the skirt variant with that, where Uhura generally wore, uh, instead of the, the pants with the, or the trousers for our British listeners, with the stripe down the side, uh, she instead wore kind of a, a skirt with the stripe down the side. Uh, which wasn't a hard and fast rule like it was in the original series, though, as well, because she does show up on Vulcan uh, at the end of Star Trek three wearing the uh, the trousers version. So, yeah, it's it's a little bit more fluid there as far as options go. But there is still that uh, feminization if one so, so chooses or <laughs> whoever the costume designer for that day chooses or, or however that decision is made in Hollywood. And that sort of buries the lead to where I'm getting at ultimately is I don't think there's a problem of having feminized or masculinized costuming. It Mm -hmm. really just depends on how that person wants to express their inborn nature. So 
you know, the TNG guy wearing the scant in an encounter at Farpoint often gets a snigger. But for me, you know, outside of the fact that, yes, you know, it's the kind of end of history, 90s, look how inclusive we are, kind of play acting at representation rather than actually giving power. To some degree, that is 100% something you should just look at and go, okay, and you know, what are your jobs, sir? Let's, you know, like whatever, whatever he has to do, him being in a scant isn't going to affect anything. Also, I'm doing a lot of work. What if he doesn't identify as he? Maybe he identifies as they or she. It doesn't really matter what color the cat is. it is. It matters that it catches mice. And I do find that the honing in on duty, job, um, and very specific uniform colors with the Monster Moon really helps things. But the problem is, and you, you kind of mentioned this, was is Starfleet supposed to be a military? Because if it is, then they need security officers with guns and helmets and special rankings so that in the melee of conflict, people know by looking at a person, right? I often think about that scene in Saving Private Ryan right off the bat where they hit the beach on the seawall and Tom Hanks, the captain, he's looking around at everybody and he says, who's in charge here? And a corporal looks at him, observes his rank and says, you are, sir, right? It's those kinds of things that obviously you would need that, right? If I'm in a scenario and I've got a redshirted Geordie Wharf, uh, and you know what, why not Data? Because he wore a red shirt once too. And they're all standing looking at me and I'm like, somebody stop that man over there. Um, both Wharf and Data are more cut out for the job versus someone needs to fix that part of the ship you know obviously Jordy and data are better cut out for the job it, it's those kinds of things where i would not be able to very quickly determine whose job is what just by looking at those three individuals and mm -hmm. so you're right it does deaden the militaristic sense of star trek by just breaking down the uniform like the the author of this really big blog on star trek uniforms does kind of muse like wouldn't it have been useful when um, Beverly Crusher and Picard are stuck on Kesprit that they, you know, would have come equipped with more stuff? Like, could they have not have come equipped with more stuff? But no, they're they're practically, it's, it's as if they went on a walk, you know, and, and forgot their phones. Yeah, I, I think uh, of, you know, TNG for example. Is, is a great example of that. Um, the episode, I want to say Future Imperfect, where Riker gets captured and it turns out by the kid, you know, all, uh, that's the whole story going on. He thinks he's 15 years in the future or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but before all of that, you know, the environment that they're in, the away team is in, changes. And we get several minutes of them coughing and hacking as the transporter tries to beam them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wouldn't some sort of secondary oxygen thing in a in some sort of field pack or something make a lot more sense there? I always I always think of the cage as well. Yeah. You know, the the Star Trek that we could have gotten but but didn't quite. The away team that beams down to Talos 4 at the very beginning. There's like seven or eight members of this sorry, landing party, I guess to use the parlance of the time. Uh and there's, you know, one guy who has this big, huge pack on his back that has this huge antenna coming out, which, you know, I, th I think that's supposed to be a communications thing or something. And they're all wearing landing party jackets and they have all got holsters with various equipment and stuff. That makes sense to me. And I can see why going into a series, maybe later on, you'd cut costs by not including that kind of stuff, which kind of sets a pattern for Star Trek going forward. But I always liked that original landing party kit. Like that looked very real and very uh, realistic. 
Yeah, and they made an attempt at that, I would say, in uh, Wrath of Khan. I think Fletcher's mm-hmm. design, that monster room design, lent itself that way, right? They had the bomber variants um, to the uniform sort of accessories and whatnot. But I, I I vaguely remember, you know, either in Search for Spock or Wrath of Khan, that they did, like, show up equipped sometimes. Like, they, like, mm-hmm. people had stuff on them and, and, and equipment and, and different sorts of things. And, and, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's why they didn't have shuttles in the original Star Trek was... They, they transported out of out of the necessity of not having to build another model, you know. So obviously, yeah, it, tech, you know, kitting out your your Starfleet officers um, on every away mission would be an expensive and production based nightmare, right? You know, there's so much continuity stuff you'd have to have figured out. It's better to have them just go down carrying a phaser and you know all the gumption they need, right? Yeah, <laughs> and cowboy diplomacy and cowboy <laughs> diplomacy. I think that would be good. So. Moving on to uh, the next generation, um, the author goes on to talk a lot about how Tice, he tries to marry both concepts of what Fletcher was creating by maintaining his vision still, right? We have the ranks move from the sleeve all the way up to the collar, which is a lot more reminiscent of where Fletcher had put the rank. Also, the actual metal um, com badge now designated specifically for Starfleet rather than only for the Enterprise. Um, and then obviously retooling that into uh, a very innovative idea of make the badge the communicator. Lovely idea. And and those kind of marryings, and then you start seeing how the actors are, are then reacting, right? Those shrinkable, awful, apparently very stinky original TNG uniforms to that Mandarin collared two-piece Picard maneuver specific uh, tunics that I just personally love. Like the, the TNG uniform is, is beautiful and lovely. And, you know, we think about stylistic choices of changing command to red. I think there was a lot of reasons behind that. Do you care much about that? I've never really heard many people be too fussed about the the gold to red command change yeah it's never something that that's really bothered me i honestly think it was probably patrick stewart looks better in red let's switch this up a bit data looks better in gold exactly yeah and i i think that works out really well um and it, it's funny because i've started to think about this now and i'm like okay so it was it was gold for command for you know, the first two centuries of Starfleet's existence, if you count Enterprise and then the original series. And then, you know, we have a mishmash for another while there. And then TNG era comes along and they switch gold and red switches. And then that carries forward for, we've now learned another thousand years in Starfleet history. That is, that has stuck, uh, unless it switched back and forth a few times in between, which I guess is possible, but I find that interesting. I'm uh, I'm actually doing a lot of research right now on the sort of era of early mercantilism. So just as the Industrial Revolution is getting going, people are traveling to other parts of the world, specifically from Europe, engaging in stuff like the slave trade, mercantile trade, floating around in, in the caravel and what we would consider to be sort of your iconic pirate ship. Uh, and if you think about the way people dressed, right, um, high heels for the first 200 years were typically worn by men Mm -hmm. and for the next 200 guess what so you know i mean in human history stylistic choices like that i guess aren't necessarily out of the question but um i wonder in in some cases this is this is actually where the blog stops he stops talking about uniforms altogether and, and ends um when we start looking at the concept of the deep space nine voyager to very cinematic 
those gray yoked tunics. Um, and then we have our stop right um, after Enterprise, which and then Enterprise, obviously, Enterprise does such a good job of blending that kind of NASA style jumpsuit with the Starfleet uniform. And I feel mm. like I wouldn't mind actually not talking about the Enterprise uniform because I actually feel like the Enterprise uniform is uniform wise the most useful, practical, stylistic and probable. And it even comes with a cap. Like, yeah, I mean, it's great. <laughs> and, but it is also very like it's it's probably the most militaristic, I think, in, in, in most of them, because it's this idea that obviously, you know, you're going into space, you're going out, but maybe not militaristic in the sense of like, let's go take over planets, maybe more in the sense of like scouts. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I want to talk more about the Enterprise uniform, but maybe later. And I'm going to get lost in the sea of it because that's kind of the thought I haven't gotten to. So maybe we can get some ideas from folks and then um, talk about the Enterprise uniform very specifically. And uh, I'll do my best to get like more information on that designer as well, because I'd be interested to see. Right. And it comes from its time and era, too. Right. Enterprise is that sort of entering into the war on terror. Um, we were a very militaristic society at that time. And we're interested in militaristic answers to, I would argue, in some cases, non-militaristic questions. Maybe talking about how you brought that up almost instantaneously when we were talking about this. Do you feel Starfleet should be militaristic or not? It's one of those questions that, like, I mean, should it be militaristic? I, I really like the idea of the original, you know, we're on the frontier, we're exploring, we're not we're we're looking to seek out new life and not oh how is it that cisco puts it in oh we're Emerson. explorers we ex- yeah we're we're explorers we we we're we seek to meet new people not to conquer you with weapons or with ideas but to get to know you and i know that's that's not the exact quote but that's the starfleet that i love now the Dominion War comes or a board ship invades Federation space, it's always Starfleet on the front lines fighting them. So are they a military? I guess evidence, but by the evidence you have to say yes, but that's not the Starfleet that I love the most. <laughs> so I don't know. That's a really fraught question for me. Well, and and maybe it is something that we could start seeing or, or really talking about in a post-scarcity world. Right. What are militaries ultimately designed for? I mean, originally it was to protect a sovereign, a king, right? A king or a queen or an emperor. Um, after the Industrial Revolution, militaries form into the protective apparatus that the state uses of of that nation, right? And a nation is just basically the area, the political boundaries of a group of people who through social economic political and cultural means see a common connection to each other and then they build a protective entity within it called a military where they all dress up in you know kind of de-individualizing uniforms where you're now determined on your merit and your rank and so obviously that's all very militaristic but in the future when we're no longer protecting scarcity um, and if we are going out into the middle of nowhere we might end up encountering individuals, societies, and species who are hostile. So much like protect the ship, protect the people on the ship concept, I often think that Starfleet can sort of be either of those things, right? Mm -hmm. It is a protector, right? It has to be protective. But that doesn't mean that's its only job. And I think seeing a society not 
having a singular entity that has what we would consider the monopoly of violence, right? If you do something really, 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 really bad and you're out of control and da 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 da, and a military person shows up, they have the option to kill you if they need to stop you. If you are a threat that needs to be neutralized, they can kill you and they will typically have the ability to do that under whatever training they've been given. I don't really see that with Starfleet as much, right? They get, well, Wesley almost gets killed for stepping on some flowers. Um, If this was a military, they would have all pulled their guns out and said, not so fast, you're not hurting one of ours, that's not going to happen here. But instead, they go through a negotiation phase. So Stargate versus Star Trek. (laughs) Well, there you go, right? And and, and much love to Stargate. I mean, damn, Mm -hmm. it's a a fantastic series, and I can't say that I I don't also enjoy watching Stargate, but- it does beg that question of, do we as a society need to have a specific military? Well, yes, today, absolutely. We have scarce resources and everyone wants, seems to want to fight each other, so I guess we'd better be armed. Um, but in the future, is that necessary, right? Would a spacefaring species who, at this point, I would probably hope, understands their fragility in the universe and in this very hostile environment we call home, um, that, that killing each other immediately or resorting to that immediately is pretty foolish, um, so yeah, when it comes time, if there is someone, you know, let's say the founders show up, the, the, the dominion wants to cause some havoc. Yes, we turn to a more militaristic approach, but once that ends, Starfleet goes back to its resting position, which is not that right. It has to don certain garments or it has to, you know, wear certain hats for different sorts of things. But that's the thing. Like, does the enterprise really look like a warship to you? Like, I don't really think so. Yeah, not really. No, but it can be, <laughs> and it has mm. been. So <laughs> Yeah, and and maybe that versatility, that way of sort of seeing Starfleet as something bigger than itself, we can now kind of see our own reflection in it. So are you ready to do a uh, a questionnaire after I let you get some some words in edgewise here? Um, I'm fascinated. Uh, that sounds like fun. Um, yeah, the whole I, I really like that perspective of Starfleet and the militarism of it and stuff. And I feel like there there's another discussion to be had here, maybe in a future episode, talking about the escalation of Starfleet over the years and <laughs> whether that's an actual thing that we're meant to be seeing happen through Starfleet or if it's just the uh, evolution of visual effects technology allowing us to put more ships on the screen at once. I don't know, but I, I feel like that's a discussion that uh, I would love to have someday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Starfleet, I mean, well, I'm... It is a reflection of now, and, you know, there are a lot of war drums being beaten, and as much as I would argue your your workaday Star Trek fan is typically, maybe we can talk before we fight, you know, there are times, and there are ways to justify the need to fight or the need to do those sorts of things. So yes, a good conversation for another day, but I want to switch over and talk about fandom, and talk about wearing Star Trek, Star Trek uniforms, seeing ourselves in a uniform and what those uniforms mean to us and how we categorize and class them. So first of all, I am going to define fandom. Um, This definition comes from an author by the name of Jenkins describes fandom as a participatory culture, which transforms the experience of media consumption into the production of new texts, indeed new culture and new community. Now, obviously, Star Trek is no stranger to fan fiction. I would argue that in terms of visual fan fiction, we have some of the best. Um, Despite some problematic people who have existed in those, uh, some of the 
love stories, I would call it, by fans of Star Trek are great. And um, there are, are, are a lot of really good productions out there of fan-related stuff. Obviously, the whole Axanar thing really blew that up, uh, and we really haven't seen Star Trek fan fiction like we used to. But there are still a lot of written fan fictions, and, and like you said, not necessarily canon when it comes to you know novelizations of Star Trek. But again, um, I would consider uh, authors like you know Dayton Ward... Um, you know, Mac, all of them to be big fans as well. I mean, writers mm-hmm. themselves, professionals, experts, people who I would much rather see write a Star Trek novel than me, um, but they they have that kind of fandom to it. So anyway, I'm I'm nattering on here, but um, my my first question would be: We engage best in what we see ourselves reflected in. So, how do you envision yourself, Dan, as a member of Starfleet? And we have done this before, and I have asked you this before, but now I really want to delve. Like, we're going to get into your brain here. What division, rank, and type of ship would would you best want to serve on? And everyone listening, do this too. Think about it. Really think. Well, as far as I, I've thought about, like, my Star Trek, my Starfleet career, you know, uh, I don't know if it would fall under, I guess, sciences, but, like, I always loved that starships had... Uh, a ship's historian or an anthropologist officer aboard. And I've always thought that would be like a fun way to get in. So I guess it would be the sciences would be how I'd, I'd, I'd climb the ladder, I guess, or whatever. But yeah, just, I, that always fascinated me that there was a, you know, an anthropology officer that accompanied an away team or a ship's historian, which in the original series, both of them that I'm thinking of wore red, for operations that doesn't really make sense i'm assuming that would be more of a sciences division so already you've thrown an interesting wrench into this is you are also possibly retconning and headcanoning while you do this Um, (laughs) (laughs) and we'll need to talk more about that and obviously this came from as i'd mentioned earlier just to, to put this back out there this is from a thesis on harry potter culture but can you see the connection between the four houses and the ranks and divisions that exist in star trek and how personality can sometimes be a factor into what rank and division you would find yourself in absolutely the the sciences the analytical part but also the the social sciences aspect of it that just really fits with my personality and that makes sense that like i'd want a conference with like-minded people and I don't know, be one of those think tanks that helps them figure out how to get around the prime directive in this issue or something in this episode. What color is your lightsaber? Oh, my, <laughs> my lightsaber is purple just because I think it's a really cool color. <laughs> it has nothing to do with like the mixture of light and dark and, and the blending. And I mean, Sam Jackson even weighed in on that. Yeah, I, I'd say probably not. I don't know. Like if we're going traditional lightsabers... Other than the the outliers, blue, blue would be my definite one. And then I just, that that little tinge of purple, it just looked so cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I palate cleansed this because you were already getting into the answer of the next question I was looking oh, for. So sorry. sorry. No, no, no. This is this is good. And and those of you who are also like, there are probably a number of people who did that too while they were while they were listening. So the next question there is, what are the qualities relative to the duties, responsibility, and skill set of your answer? Uh, what qualities do you admire or value in yourself about that now? So let's get some positive self-talk here. What do you value about yourself that would make you fit for this position? I think for myself, it's seeing different 
uh, situations from different perspectives and, and playing off of colleagues and, and bouncing ideas off of each other. Uh, there've been more than one occasion where, you know, a bunch of us are kind of sitting around trying to figure out how to solve a problem. And for some reason, I just can kind of look at it askew and say like, oh, here's something that we never thought of, you know, and that kind of thing. And I feel like that's a big part of Starfleet and the, you know, in a, in a 44 minute episode, that's how they get out of the situation, right? Somebody sees something different and they techno babble a thing and control alt delete reconfigure the main deflector dish bob's your uncle right yeah. whatever but uh yeah i feel like um working in a group and uh uh having kind of a, a think tank going being a part of that i i feel comfortable doing that you had mentioned though being like the ship's historian slash anthropologist and so i want to delve into that a little bit more too about what qualities you you value and admire in yourself about that specifically do you find yourself going into you know can you can you tell an old building or a, an old building that's been retro or refitted or anything like that have you you know or or you know have you ever been to a historical site and you've you've kind of use that to kind of look around a bit more and, and try to de determine sort of what things looked like or or how things would have been um oriented. Yeah, that's actually, <laughs> you've hit on one of my favorite things to do when I'm traveling and visiting places. Yeah. The, these places that, that we live today in 2022 slash 23, like a lot of them, not necessarily in this part of the world, uh, at least, uh, in the traditional way we think about it as, as far as, you know, whatever, um, a lot of these sites have been, uh, looking the way they look for hundreds of thousands of years and uh, seeing those from the perspective of people walking around, you know, a millennia ago, what that would have looked like, or even two or 300 years ago. Uh, I find that really fascinating for sure. And do you think that, you know, obviously working in that division, you would find other people who'd be able to um, be like-minded in that sense? Yeah, I would, I would think so. That would be kind of the most exciting part to me would be collaborating with colleagues and, and building knowledge that way. Now, oftentimes you get, you don't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, as Mick said, you get what you need. <laughs> um, are there flaws and personality issues that you could associate with your, your designated Starfleet place and division and everything like that? Do you feel your self-perceived flaws match with the division rank and starship you chose? I'd say that makes sense. I mean, you know, we have to remember though, that the writers have forbidden us from having interpersonal conflict. So no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I feel like especially in the sciences or the social sciences, there's sometimes big personalities and, uh, Oh, I'm thinking of, there's a, there's a great, uh, Voyager episode called good shepherd where mm, yeah. the ensigns, they're kind of misfits. And there's the one guy who, you know, doesn't want to do the typical Starfleet stuff. He's kind of sequestered himself on deck 15 and he's trying to prove mathematical theorems and doesn't like interacting with people and stuff. I feel like you'd, you'd get those types in Starfleet that are very, you know, um, proprietary about, you know, they, they just want to complete their, their doctorate and, you know, they're, they're going through Starfleet to do that kind of thing. <laughs> kind of glibly almost, eh? Yeah. Would you, can, like, you've mentioned this, would the, like, and I don't want to, you know, delve into anything negative, but would you say this is an aspect of your character that you could see in yourself, or is this something that you could see in others? I think I'd see it more in others than myself. 
So what would you see in yourself then? Yeah, I could see sometimes I get a little hyper-focused and, and that kind of thing and kind of really focus in on one thing and, and to the detriment of kind of other stuff that's going on. So, you know, if I, if I have 10 things on my plate, generally I tend to kind of focus on one and then like I kind of have to do it linearly. I'm not great at juggling a lot of those things if they're big things, if that makes sense. So yeah, I, I could see that being an issue, the kind of hyper-focus on one thing where the, the captain's saying, you know, that mission was last week. <laughs> We're not there anymore. We need to uh, focus on what's happening on Persephone 8 mm -hmm. now and whatever. Well, and, then, and there we've just written an episode, right? Here you are working on some very specific historical project on a previous away mission, and you go down with a group of other people and to a different place, and you're supposed to, you know, it's a it's an old temple, there's traps in certain places, and, you know, um, one of the away team members gets sprayed with a fungus that you would have known had you been more focused on the mission at hand and not trying to still connect back to the previous mission. And now you're facing a court-martial. Yeah. Oh, not good. Not a good week for... for Measure of a Dan. <laughs> Measure of a Dan. That's great. That's good. So, yeah. so for... So for myself, like I would definitely want to be in a command role, um, commanding a military ship, pro probably on the neutral zone, not to actually fight, but to be a negotiator. Mm -hmm. um, I love and very much value the ability to find connection, empathy, uh, to be able to, you know, the old saying, the enemy's story is a lot like mine, um, try to be able to find my way through to uh, a negotiated and peaceful settlement. That said, you know, I, I think of myself very tactical and decisive when I need to be. The problem is, is I typically don't listen to other people as well as I should. I don't take advice and I turtle when things get too overwhelming. Hmm. And I think, you know, if you think about the big, the big captains, you know, in certain cases, there are points, right? I often, I very much, um, obviously identify with Cisco and um, Avery Brooks's performance in, in in the pale moonlight right the um, where he has to make an extremely difficult decision that ultimately was a war crime like if you really think about it he mm -hmm. committed a full-on war crime crime against humanity in some cases if you think about it because of the amount of Romulans who are now going to die and then obviously it raises the questions of like uh, the Dominion they were going to die anyway um, but at the same time you know that the future isn't. The future is imperfect, as they might say. I think that would be a flaw on my end. But, you know, ah, that's me. You know, I'm a I'm a real command, right? I, I like to be in command. And, and sometimes that that is the last thing I need to be. Well, I, I, I'd be very excited about kind of uh, being with you in the briefing and explaining the horse historical context in which the Treaty of Algeron was negotiated. And yeah. And I would say, I would say, spare me the particularities, officer. I need to know how to get through their defense system. And you have that, you know, you would have the knowledge, <laughs> right? Uh, we can, mm -hmm. we can, we can, um, we can debate the differences between, you know, blah, 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 historical term and how their ships are designed now. Right now, I need to know um, what I'm walking myself into, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, if you and I met on, you know, our version of 10 forward or in the mess hall um, to a couple of Aldebaran Al Al um, brandies, was it? That'll work. <laughs> yeah, Aldebaran brandy. And we'll get we'll get wasted and talk about that. Right. But it would be done in a much more party kind of happy environment. Um, mm. Can the small talk. 
right? I'm a bit of a Jellicoe. And, and, but isn't that funny how I can say that, much like I'm a bit of a Hufflepuff, I'm a bit of a Jellicoe, um, and now we know where I stand on a debate. Um, now we know kind of the kind of command structure I have. I would also tell Deanna Troy to get in uniform. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a bit of a data sometimes. Like I might start offering a bit too much and, you know, the captain might have to say, you know, Mr. Gunther, please, uh, can we stick to what's relevant? <laughs> I would turn and just go, stay on target, stay on target. <laughs> cool. Okay. So moving on, could the ideas of division ranks and ship preferences be a way to other or exclude people, however, too? Oh, he's a bit of a Jellico. Hmm. Oh, they're a bit of a California class, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome and full of fun <laughs> and friendship. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there's there's the we that's a that's a theme we've seen coming up in Star Trek recently a bit, especially through as I kind of alluded to their lower lower decks, right? The lower decks versus the the command crews and uh, the the sovereign class crews versus the California class crews and that kind of thing. Yeah, I feel like there would be some rivalry and some some stuff between like oh the science nerds and the you know the the grease monkey engineer guys or something like that yeah i, I could see that kind of othering happening especially delta shift delta <laughs> shift <laughs> so right there <laughs> that doesn't really happen in our fandom right we mm -hmm. don't really call ourselves a, a this or a that whereas obviously mentioned in the harry potter fandom they do right they you know person's a gryffindor a person's a ravenclaw and then people also say you know like well actually slytherin isn't bad right and, you know it's just they are capable of using any means necessary right i would honestly say that uh, kira narice is probably a slytherin and she had to be one because she had to defeat the cardassians and you don't defeat the cardassians by f playing nice Mm -hmm. Right. You need to have a certain amount of uh, lack of Ruth, as they would say, a ruthlessness um, to your actions and pity, empathy, sympathy, you know, the milk of human kindness can sometimes get in the way of what you need to do back to Cisco and in the pale moonlight. Right. I'm wondering if that's a like th there's an inherent competitiveness in the house system in uh, Harry Potter. Right. Like, yeah. Ten points to Gryffindor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Star Trek has always been like one of my favorite aspects of Star Trek is it portrays the absolute ideal work environment, which is a group of competent professionals coming together to problem solve and not belittling each other while doing it. Like, for example, if Beverly Crusher says, I heard what sounded like voices in my quarters last night, the rest of the crew isn't going like, wow, she is nuts. They're going like, <laughs> well, were there any scans run last night that we can get information from? What was going on? Like, was there anything else reported by people? You know, I, I love that. That's just, anytime there's a scene like that, my heart just melts and I'm like, I want every workplace to be like this. So I'm gonna, I'm now gonna come in with a number of pins uh, and pop all your bubbles. First of all, ontologically, <laughs> Beverly Crusher is not rational. If there's nothing wrong with me, there must be something wrong with the universe. Are you crazy? <laughs> oh, that's one of my favorite lines ever. I love oh that. my God. So there's that. So the other bubble I'm going to pop is O'Brien. Um, first of all, they don't know what to do with the man. He gets like one hollow pip for like several seasons in the next generation. <laughs> and then he gets this like bizarre configurations of dots and chevrons that then designate him as some kind of non-commissioned rank. And right mm -hmm. there, the enlistment, right? And this definitely even predates Fletcher, right? This is, this is even back in the Tysus time because like if O'Brien was actually 
you know, obviously he did wear a red shirt in Trials and Tribulations. But if O'Brien was actually on the Enterprise at that time, he'd be wearing a pair of coveralls, right? Mm-hmm. He'd just yeah. be one of those, as the author of this blog says, a worker bee, right? And then you see those worker bees continued into Fletcher, right? They were a slight variant on that kind of beigey 1970s style, or the, the, the beigey sort of version of a monster maroon, but for enlisted officers rather than the, the, the full-on um, commissioned ranks. And so right there, there is still a hierarchy, but you're right. No one really... That never becomes a point of tension very often. I mean, it never really gets portrayed much as O'Brien. I mean, he he typically, when whenever asked, I find, is usually either he's on 10 forward or he's at Quark's bar, and his quick explanation is like, I just didn't have time for a commissioned rank, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I do think that, you know, when we think about pips and squeaks and non-commissioned ranks, um, it has been left kind of ambiguous. And it's never really been explored very much, that, that kind of stratification. So I think it kind of maintains that idea of, you know, uh, a ship is full of, like you said, you know, well-educated, competent professionals, right? Even if they aren't necessarily, they don't have those magical pieces of paper that say they get, you know, in our society, that they get more money than the other person. And as an educator, I will say very much, um, you know, degrees are valuable and good and wonderful and great education, but you don't have to have one to be an educator. And I'll just say that straight up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was thinking of O'Brien while you were talking. And one of the things that I'm, I'm sad they never quite did is in like season six and seven of Deep Space Nine after Nog becomes an ensign. And they show O'Brien and Nog working together every once in a while. And I always wanted O'Brien to call Nog sir. Well, he should have. He should have. And we see that in uh, season one of Deep Space Nine, the first time Bashir and O'Brien are paired together. Every time, you know, this brash young Lieutenant Julian Bashir is trying to chat O'Brien up and, and, you know, and O'Brien, is that a fact, sir? Yes, sir. But, and then Bashir's like, you don't really have to call me, sir. <laughs> you know? Actually, I do. <laughs> that, yeah. Those those little dots on your neck say I do. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, uh, they, they made a little joke uh, when Nog first goes to the academy and O'Brien says, I just realized when he graduates, I'm going to have to call him sir. But they never follow through on that joke. They, <laughs> I really wish they'd have paid that off in season seven. Yeah, but. fair enough. Kind of finishing things off, I'd, I'd mentioned that I think Discovery has kind of alleviated the issue of the uniform um, in some ways. And I would say this mainly because we are now seeing characters of no specified gender or one that we would necessarily accept or understand fully in our current society, all basically wearing the same outfit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, prodigy aside with like body type and, and like, if you're just like a different species that can't, maybe you have more arms, you know, um, the, the three armed, um, pilot, I think of the enterprise in the animated series. And I believe he's made a, um, they've kind of made some resurgences now in like, um, lower decks and whatnot, um, uh, you know, limbs and, and whatnot, notwithstanding, I do find now, especially, the uniform has been very much degendered, um, and you can tell because everyone has shoulder pads now again, which I think is great. Um, <laughs> I, I love shoulder pads in, in uniforms, but it does militarize it a little bit more, and I think that sometimes that's the only way we can really see it. Right today, I would argue, um, and this is you know the old fireman argument. I don't care if you are male or female or anything. If you can get my unconscious body out of a burning building. 
go for it. <laughs> right. Mm. Um, now that does ignore a lot of extra tropes alongside of that. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be strong to do that. You can be, as you'd said, you know, see things differently and be innovative, right? A person who might not necessarily be able to beat me in an arm wrestle could still save me from a burning building. Um, and I would argue that, um, mm-hmm. But I do like how the new Discovery and and the original uniforms, I think they started that way. But you see a uniform that doesn't necessarily cast itself as male or female. Obviously, there are people with certain, you know, parts that that will mean that because these are form-fitting uniforms, you get a bit of a, um, not quite to the level of Decker in the the motion picture. (laughs) I honestly, it's... I know I'm really going back to that all the time, but it's really something you can't unsee. And the mm-hmm. reason why it, it hits me so hard is I have a fear of like that happening to me. Um, just don't ever want that. Anyways, I get, I get it. I absolutely get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyways, um, basically what you see now is a uniform that, that really does base itself more on merit. It bases itself more on, like you had said, are you a professional who's capable of their task? Well, I would say that maybe now we now that we've kind of leveled the uniform, we can now do some more stuff with it. Like I would love to see classically feminizing components of a uniform on a more masculine coding person. Right? I would like to see those things happen. Much like we saw, you know, African Americans on the bridge in the sixties, I think this is our opportunity with Star Trek is to take the uniform and use it to bend um gender concepts right? We've mm-hmm. done it before. The scant is living proof, right? Um, I think that's where we can go next. And again, not doing it for the sake of it. Like the scant was really just look at that guy. And then it, it was never brought up again. I wouldn't mind seeing mm-hmm. storylines around it. I wouldn't mind seeing characters explore that even. Um, but then that's just me. Yeah. No, I, I think if any show is going to do it, it's Star Trek, right? I mean, they're, they pride themselves on being at the forefront of these kinds of movements and uh yeah why not right i mean if it's meant to reflect society those aspects exist in society and everyone deserves to see that representation and exploration not just representation like you you alluded to there for mm-hmm. sure and and i really like your point about the discovery current discovery uniforms being very non-male or female coded right non non-binary coded i guess Whereas like even the Mandarin collar TNG uniforms, yeah, they were, they were a nice kind of loose-ish fitting two-piece uniform. If you were a man, if you were a woman, it was a one-piece, very form-fitting one. Same thing for even one of my favorite uniforms, the first contact style uniform. Again, it was, it was a two-piece uniform for Captain Picard. For everyone else, it was a jumpsuit, but for the males, it was a fairly loose, you know, not too restrictive jumpsuit. For someone like Jadzia Dax, they made sure it hugged every single curve of that body. Yeah. And it there was, you know, when, uh, when Bashir sits down, you see it wrinkle up and rumple. When Dax sits down, it's just as tight everywhere as it is when she's standing, you know? Yeah. So there, there's always that aspect that's been there and i do like that you know adira tall and michael burnham and paul stamets are all wearing essentially the same uniform i, yeah. I think that lo- and it looks great too <laughs> and obviously it fits their form 
mm-hmm. but it's not a defining quality. And there's a, you know, there's an X factor to that. It's how they portray the characters. Obviously, these writers have an agenda. And I think getting away from just straight out there, folks, I like writers with agendas. I love it when they have agendas. I just watched the new Puss in Boots movie and the writers had an agenda. You need to watch this movie uh, if you want to see some very bonk bonk on the head uh, messages about a lot of stuff. Um but yeah, I mean, what we can do now is, is I mean, I don't want to move to like everyone just like, typically your argument against um, non-binary clothing is like, oh, everyone's just going to wear burlap cubes. It's like, no, no. I do think that we can explore sex and sexuality through what we wear, obviously, and we do that maybe too much in our society. Um, but I think also when we start wearing Star Trek uniforms, you, me, folks listening, we're not doing it necessarily for anyone but ourselves, I would say. And this is kind of where I want to land the conversation now is we do all this because we want to, because we want to be that. Where do we go when we put the Star Trek uniform on at the start? We go to a mirror. We look at ourselves first. Um, there's often the saying that that men get told at certain points that, you know, women don't dress to impress you. They dress to impress other women. I can't speak to that. I'm not a woman. But I would say we don't dress in a Starfleet uniform to impress other people because we know the inherent embarrassment of wearing a Starfleet uniform at any point. Um, We do it for ourselves. And I think if there's something you like doing for yourself, it's really important to explore that. I've thought a lot about why I like wearing a Starfleet uniform, where I'd find myself, why I'd find myself there and what that means about who I am as a person. Right. Um, The fun part about Star Trek is they aren't in space folks. They're in the human consciousness and psyche. That's actually what we're exploring. Right. And so with that, I think finding bits of fandom that you love about something you love, a cultural pop cultural phenomenon and seeing where you fit within it is a really good way to learn about yourself. Not that you get lost in the fandom and just become a collector of things. Um, like we talked about uh, before recording, Dan, it's, it's more about where we see ourselves and how we dress ourselves is ultimately how we project ourselves. And how are you projecting yourself is that big question. And what elements of your personality do you want to project more than others? And what aspects of your personality do you want to hide more than others? Well, you can do that with a with a uniform. You can do that. Um, you can blend in, right? Or you can stand out. Uh, it really depends on the context of where you're in. And I think that these fandoms like Star Trek, Doctor Who, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Marvel, whatever, um, are new mediums for us to be able to do that. And I think Star Trek has a very rich history about that. And this is a conversation worth returning to. Absolutely. I I feel like there's a lot more to say about uniforms and fandom and all that kind of stuff. You know, even even that unspoken discussion about the Enterprise uniforms to come back to. Yes, we need to. That sounds like a lot of fun. So... Uh, more to come on this, I would say, for sure. And if you have any thoughts further on this, please, you know, you can drop us a line. Obviously, we have the Positively Trek Facebook group that I am still a ghost on. Um, but Dan's around, um, and uh, he will relay messages to the hermit that is me um, on those <laughs> sorts of things. I would really be interested, though, in in hearing what people have to say about their uniform, where they would find themselves, and maybe what aspects of their character put them in those places, right? Um I don't necessarily want to hear people be like totally like horribly self-critical or anything or, or say like, I'm a super awesome boss and I'd be able to run a spaceship anywhere, that kind of thing. But, you know, really try to explore this concept because, and I'm, I'm guessing fellow Star Trek fans probably already have, um, because I think that's what we do. Um, we are explorers. We explore our lives day by day. Sorry. (laughs) Call back. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So yeah, I think 
fandom is more than just collecting trinkets and dressing up and going to cons and you know catching a different show or whatever else it it is actually very much what we'd said at the beginning of all of this is it creates an economy of culture right fandom in and of itself to repeat that quote uh, is a participatory culture that transforms the experience of media consumption into the production of new texts now they say texts in the sense of like fan fiction but like we create our own little meta narratives. We all have our own headcanon. We all have a place on the star- on whatever starship we'd find ourselves on. Um, and indeed, it creates this culture and community. And as much as, yeah, it's based off of a, you know, gimmicky TV show that was supposed to be wagon trained to the stars so it could sell color televisions. Um, oh, well, that's its start. We get We get control of that fandom now. And I love the direction that Star Trek is heading in right now. And I do think that it is a quiet, unsung direction. Um, but uh, I'm happy to be a part of that. Here, here. Uh, I I couldn't agree more. That's very, very well put. Well, I think with that we can um, we can put this uh, episode to a close. We thank everyone for listening and hope that uh, y- the the uh, holiday season right now. There's a number of holidays happening that you are enjoying yourself and that the new year uh, is a prosperous and successful one, uh, full of health, happiness, and new adventure. And um, other than that, you can find me sometimes on the Positively Trek uh, Facebook page. I'm buried forward to uh, Facebook. I'm rarely on, but uh, if you want to see stuff about uh, Star Trek, definitely check out the Positively Trek uh, Facebook page. Dan, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. I'm also on Facebook on the Positively Trek discussion group as well. Uh, also, Positively Trek is now on Mastodon. You can find it at positively trek at masthead.social is the uh the server that we're on there uh so yeah check us out uh you'll still find us on twitter at positively trek but it's pretty much just a link to our mastodon uh as long as we're still able to do that on twitter i guess yeah i don't know I just remembered Mastodon exists. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> there are, yeah, the, the the weirdness of social media right now, I think really does bring up this concept that we need a digital commons. Um, we've talked about that before as well. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think finding us on uh, just, just on the, on the podcast itself is good, but this discussion needs to continue. And I think uh, I would be interested to see what kind of crew we could create uh, among the, among the listeners. Uh, if we could see where everyone would find themselves, could we actually like have an away team and everyone would have a job on that away team? That would be interesting to see. Yeah. Also a uh, discord is a thing. Right. I don't know. Would people be interested in a positively Trek discord server? I, I don't know. That would be, that would be interesting. I think there's a greater than zero chance you'd find me more on discord. I, I do a lot of more kind of political stuff on, on discord myself right now, but hmm. um, yeah, that'd be cool. Nice yeah. self-contained environment. Um, let us know what you think. Hit us up. Yeah. Chime in. You can also just reach us directly positively trek at gmail.com as well. So that's always an option. Wonderful. Well, with that, we bid you all a happy new year and a happy holiday season. And if you are on in the Northern Hemisphere, make sure you stay warm. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, please stay cool because it's hot down there. And other than that, uh, have a good week and stay positive. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. 